Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode number 198 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, we need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Phoebe McCarthy, Loreen, Bree Robertson, Renate L.M., Rihanna Francis Timms, Sarah Lopez, Morgan Bramley, Nicole Palmer, Jennifer Yurth, Catherine Juarez, Gunfrieder Catherine Thomasdotter, and Corey Jansen. Can I just say <laughs> that Gunfrieder, I I I had to ask somebody on Instagram how to pronounce your name because I googled it and realised it was Icelandic. And um, to the person on Instagram who helped me with the pronunciation, thank you. But I also can't pronounce your name, so it's just a vicious cycle here. It's a vicious cycle. But I'm sorry, I did my best. I tried, and uh, it was it was it was tricky. And Icelandic is a beautiful language. But thank you all so much for being Patreon subscribers. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is In the Earth. In the Earth was released in 2021. It has 5.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. As the world searches for a cure to a disastrous virus, a scientist and a park scout venture deep in the forest for a routine equipment run. Through the night, their journey becomes a terrifying voyage through the heart of darkness, the forest coming to life around them. I am a big fan of an end of the world movie, an apocalypse movie, a movie where a virus sweeps the earth. Like, I love films like that. But this film honestly felt like gobshitery of the highest degree. Before we get into the dislikes column, let's start with the likes. And let's be fair. I love a homegrown horror I love a British horror film and I love a relatively low budget horror film because I think they always need to be they need to be clever. You know, you can't rely on CGI and graphics and all that kind of stuff. So you have to be cleverer. And I love a horror film that strays away from horror tropes. And this film is very original. I will give it that. It was a really cool original idea, sort of. We'll get to why it maybe didn't work later. But I thought, yeah, great. It focuses on like ancient folklore and the idea of the land and nature being the most powerful entity of all and like don't fuck with nature kind of thing. I was into it. I was like, yeah, brilliant. I'm really excited to watch this film. I'd never heard of it. Just came across it randomly on Netflix when I was looking for something to watch. And I thought, yeah, this is going to be good. I'm excited. The character of the park ranger in the film who leads the scientist into the woods is a woman called Alma and she is a great character she is 
a voice of reason. She takes absolutely no shit. She will like fuck you up if she needs to. She is like smashing the shit out of people the whole way through. The whole way through she's like, let's not do that. That seems like a terrible idea. She's great. She's a great horror character. And I really, really liked her and I really enjoyed watching her. And frequently through the film when she made a really good decision and smacked somebody with a shovel or whatever else she was doing. I was like, yeah, go on, Alma. I'm loving your work. So I was a big fan. Unfortunately, that's where the likes column ends, to be honest. Um, Yeah, there were major issues with the storytelling of this film. I, I just, like I said in the beginning, very good concept. However... It felt like it was simultaneously incredibly obvious, like I knew exactly what was going to happen, but it also somehow felt that they were winging it scene by scene. Like, it didn't feel like anybody sat down and really fleshed out a good story for this film. It felt like they filmed a scene and then went, oh, fuck it, what's going to happen next? Uh, Right, let's do another shot of them running through the forest. Let's do that. And then we'll figure it out as we go along. That's honestly what it felt like. And then I thought, okay, so they've come up with this central theme of this folkloric kind of pagany ritualistic idea of an entity that lives in the forest and they're trying to communicate with it through sound and light. But then I don't think they had anything else to work with with the story other than that. Like the bit about it being a virus that is sweeping through the world. Pointless. There was no need. There was no need for that part of the story. It added nothing. It, it it didn't make any sense. It seemed like the director, I think it was Ben Wheatley directed it, just wanted to go, how can we put this into a modern context? Oh, I know, we've just been through a massive global pandemic. Let's work with that. But then it didn't, it didn't add anything to the film whatsoever. Like, not even a little bit. And what you did have in the film that seemed to attempt to make it edgy was these random shots of, like, various like psychedelic sequences of plants and lights and kaleidoscopic visuals that happened every now and then that actually added nothing. I don't even quite understand what they were meant to add. They, they It just made my eyes hurt. Like, honestly, if you have photosensitive epilepsy, don't watch this film. It, it's not a good idea. And you know the way there's some films that seem to be just a sequence of like unrelated events almost and then you go, I don't understand what this is about. But then when you figure out the metaphor or you figure out what it's supposed to symbolise, you go, oh, okay. And a good example of that, I think, is the film Mother! Exclamation mark with Jennifer Lawrence. Like watching that film, I remember being like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what is happening. But then, and I had to Google it in the end because I still didn't get it when the film ended. And then when I realised what the film was about, it all slotted into place. And actually, genuinely was quite clever. This, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, there was like ringworm at one point that was apparently calling these men to the forest ringworm could you not have thought of anything else so ringworm is calling these men to the forest the forest is all communicating with each other but there's also this like ancient entity that they want to sacrifice people to there is inexplicable ritualistic elements that you never quite understand why the rituals take place in the way that they do And there are two scientists who are living out in the forest, one of whom seems to be very mentally unwell and have had some sort of psychotic break. The other one who seems to be uh, fine and has learned to communicate with this forest entity. But none of it sort of meshes together and really makes any sense. And it's just bizarre. 
and to be honest, I didn't really care. The, the characters were, were generally unremarkable and frankly really boring. And I do think it was down to bad writing and a badly edited film. Like there was a point in the film where two of the characters are standing there and two other characters are far off in the distance having a conversation that is very important to the future of all of the characters. One, the, the characters that are far away, one turns to the other and goes, um, what are they talking about? And the other guy's like, well, I don't know, I can't hear them. Well, obviously, you're a bazillion miles away. Tell me what that line added to this script. And it just really irked me so much. And I didn't care if the characters got chopped to bits. I didn't care if the forest came alive and ate them all. Didn't, it didn't bother me. I wasn't interested. Didn't care either way. And I don't even know really what to score this film. Maybe two stars for an original idea? Well, I don't even know if I can do that because they had this original idea and then sort of made it up as they went along after that. And, and, and subsequently, I think, ruined the original idea. So I don't know. Maybe a one star? Maybe it's a one star film. Oh, I've had a bad run of films, really, haven't I? I mean, we've had Deep House, we've had The Pope's Exorcist, we've had this film. It's not, it's, I've not had a good time lately with films, to be honest. So that's one star for In the Earth. And just to say, I disliked this film so much that when I posted it on Instagram, I usually post the film and I don't really comment on it after that because I, I want people to watch it and make up their own mind, you know? This time I posted it on Instagram and when people were like, oh, I'll look it up and watch it, I was like, don't bother. I was commenting back being like, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wouldn't waste your time, really, to be honest. Am I starting to get harsher again with the film reviews? Oh, I don't even know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Which brings us to our story this week. Before we even begin, I need to address the fact that this story is wild. I need to also thank Adam from Weekly Creep for giving me the book of this story. The book is called Number 91, A Belfast Ghost Story uh, by John Skillen. And the book was written by the man who was the centre of all of this. And holy moly, is it's a wild ride. OK, so brace yourselves. This is going to be long. It's going to be involved. It requires a lot of listening. And to be clear, there are about a thousand characters in this story. So I've whittled them down and tried to get rid of as many people as I could so that it's not confusing. But oh, this, oh, right. Oh, let's, let's just, let's just get started. What happened in number 91 Beachmount came out of the blue. John and Greta had been living in the house for 10 years prior to the birth of their daughter, Joanne. They had four other children. John, who was 16 when it all began, 
Mark, Paul and Gerard and then finally their only girl, Joanne. The house was completely nondescript and was almost identical to every other house on the street. It was a terraced council house with four bedrooms and a front door that opened right out onto the street. The house had been built in the early 1970s and the family knew the previous tenants. They knew them well. They were nice normal people and there was just nothing weird or untoward hidden in the corners of the house. The family lived a normal life and the children spent their time playing out in the square that the house was situated in. It was safe, there were tons of other children and life for the family trundled along perfectly normally and it was perfectly average. But unbeknownst to the family, something had been seeping into the foundations, something was creeping into the bricks and wrapping its tendrils around the fabric of their family. If they were to be completely honest, things had been happening for two years, maybe more. But the things that were happening seemed like isolated incidents, individual moments that didn't link together in their brains. Young John would hear footsteps in the house in the dead of night when everyone else was asleep. But obviously that was just the house settling. The television and the lights going on and off by themselves were just faulty electrics. And the shadows that Greta and John saw flitting past the doorways at night time was just their imagination, just a trick of the light. But on the 2nd of June 1989, something changed. Something deep and dark revealed itself to the family and their lives would be changed forever. It was a Friday night and the family had been to Mass as it was the Feast of the Sacred Heart. They were relatively devout and going to Mass was a regular occurrence for them. As was usual for them at the weekend, John and Greta had gotten some cans to enjoy while they all watched a video as a family. It was a lovely night and by 11.30pm the children were all settled in bed. At around 12.30am, John went upstairs to use the bathroom and when he emerged onto the landing, he came face to face with a woman. He was startled, naturally, but she was gone as quick as he had seen her. A trick of the light, he told himself. It was clearly something to do with the night time and the shadows and the light from the bathroom. But there was something solid about this woman. She seemed really there. And John was overcome with the feeling that this woman, whatever she was, was not welcome. The feeling disturbed him, but he convinced himself that it was all lights and shadows and went back downstairs, not mentioning anything to Greta. In the flow of the hushed conversations with Greta, he forgot about his millisecond experience on the landing and felt calm and reassured. A little while later, he returned upstairs to check the taps in the bathroom. Having four children, they had the habit of leaving the taps trickling after they washed up for the night. When he entered the bathroom, John stepped towards the sink and jumped as he heard a slam behind him. The door had slammed shut. There was no wind and no draught. He barely had time to react when he was plunged into darkness as the lights went out. And in another instant, the bathroom was ice cold. John was frozen, trying to comprehend what in the hell was happening when he became acutely aware that there was someone 
or something in the bathroom with him. He couldn't see anything, but everything in his body told him that he was inches away from another body, another person, another entity, and it was prowling around him like a predator. He became aware of noises at the door. It was young John. He was pounding on the door and shouting, Dad! Dad, open the door! Dad, the the door, it won't move! Suddenly the door opened and young John was standing on the other side, sleepy and confused. Dad, what happened? All the noise woke me. John burst from the bathroom, finally able to move, and ran panting into the boys' bedroom. By this time, all of the children and Greta had appeared in the room. Voices clamoured to find out what had happened, but they all fell silent almost in unison, as something cold. A strange chill descended over the room. Greta's face betrayed the horror she felt and she grabbed John's arm in fear as whatever it was passed through the room. Greta did not need an explanation. She had felt whatever that was in the house. That cold chill felt like another body, something unnatural that had stalked through the upstairs of the house. The children were terrified. And in order to try and calm the situation, John and Greta suggested that they all sleep downstairs. And they all hurried to make makeshift beds in the living room. As the family lay trying to process what had happened, John felt the unmistakable pressure of something grabbing his head and shoulders. And before he could react, his head was smashed against the fireplace. He lay in a daze, barely aware of the sounds around him. The kids were screaming, and Greta had jumped up. Dazed and confused, John fumbled to turn the light on, and when he did, the family came to a stark realisation that the room was so cold, their breath was billowing out in plumes in front of them. John blinked as a figure began to materialise in front of him. It was that same woman, but clearer. She was of medium height and she stood there, with her eyes piercing into John. Her hair was dark and tied in a bun at the side of her head. She wore a full-length black dress that was in stark contrast to her skin, which was shockingly pale. What John didn't realise was that while he was frozen in place watching this woman, he was also screaming at Greta to help him. The woman approached him and put her hand on his shoulder, which felt like a block of ice. As soon as Greta put her arms around John, the woman left the room and retreated back up the stairs. To make the children feel safe, the family slept in the downstairs bedroom that had a lock on the door. Eventually they fell asleep, but John remained awake all night feeling a sharp tugging on his hair at regular intervals. He spent the night terrified, the entity alternating between pulling his hair and slapping his face, but John didn't move. He was more concerned about frightening the life out of his children than he was about the entity. As he laid there awake, he realised that he had left the lights on in the living room and left the television plugged in. Now he had an entity scaring the children and burning the house down to be worried about. He got up, whispered to Greta where he was going 
and made his way to the living room, followed by his second son, Mark. The living room was thankfully empty, and the fear and the screaming now all seemed a bit ridiculous. Mark busied himself unplugging lamps and the TV and VHS player, and John sat on the sofa. Again, he was plunged into an icy cold chill, and he realised that he was not alone on the sofa. The woman was sitting at the other end, watching him. He was frozen in place. Mark? Mark, can, can you... Can you see anything on the sofa? Mark turned and squinted at his father, confused. There's a mist, Dad. Th- there's a black mist next to you. Again, she stood up and walked up the stairs. She did not look misty to John. She looked real and solid. John followed her to the door and watched her walk up the stairs. He heard the creak of the steps beneath her feet. That night, John returned to the bedroom to try and get some sleep. At one point in the early morning, he was roused from a light, fitful doze and saw in horror that the woman was back, standing over his son Paul, watching him as he slept, before making her way out the door and back up the stairs. But what happened that night? What triggered the appearance of this woman and why could only John see her. John and Greta didn't know who to talk to. The next morning, the children bolted out the door to play out and John and Greta mulled over their options. They couldn't see the doctor because he would think they were mad. The neighbours would laugh at them because no one would believe their story. No, it was best that they kept it all to themselves. Except the children had other ideas. And word travelled fast. By midday... Neighbours were knocking on their door and people began to get very concerned upon hearing the whole family reiterate the exact same story. Neighbours had initially thought the children were exaggerating or even flat out lying. But John and Greta were clearly terrified. And the house felt... odd. It was cold and dark and felt heavy. A priest was organised to come and bless the house that very evening. The priest arrived at 6.30pm and it was clear that he had some serious reservations about being there. As the family explained what had happened the night before, he listened quietly and intently and when they finished, he said that he would do what he could but that there was no guarantee that his blessing would be in any way effective. He blessed the downstairs but upon attempting to make his way upstairs, he froze on the third step and refused to go any further. He was clearly terrified. But even the thought of a priest having been there and done his thing was enough for the children of the house. As far as they were concerned, the priest had fixed it and the house was back to normal and indeed they behaved as if it was. They were calm and relaxed and happy and that night, a cousin and his girlfriend called to the house to see how things were. As they sat and chatted... John had to use the bathroom so made his way upstairs without a thought in his mind for the woman in black. But as soon as he entered the bathroom, he was gripped with an ice-cold fear. She was there. And this time, he heard her voice. Get out! Get out! Get out! 
John called for Greta in a panic and Greta and their two guests came clambering up the stairs. John was on the landing now and the guests exclaimed about how cold it was. John and Greta dropped to their knees and began to use their rosary beads to pray but John could feel another hand on the rosary beads. She was there in front of them, her hand on the beads. One of the guests handed John a bottle of holy water. They all saw John pouring the bottle of water, seemingly according to them, into midair. John saw the water trickle through the face and the hair of the woman in black. But the guests and Greta, they saw the water seemingly disappear into thin air. There was a beat and she was gone. The carpet where she had been in front of them, where John had poured the water over her, was bone dry. In a way, John felt vindicated. While he was the only one who could see her, the others felt her icy presence, and they saw the holy water seemingly disappear into thin air. That night, after their cousin and his girlfriend had left, Greta's best friend called in to check up on her and see if she was okay, but also to find out if the rumours were true. During their conversation in the living room, John became aware of a dip in the temperature. His anxiety grew, and he knew she was coming. The woman in black entered the living room and moved towards John. Greta and Kathy had gone quiet, acutely aware of the icy chill in the room. She sat down on the sofa next to John and he could feel her sitting there as though she was a real person. And the next part of the story is best told in John's words. Kathy tried to talk to her. She couldn't see her, but she could feel her cold presence sitting there. When the woman made no answer to Kathy's questions, Kathy asked me to try and get through to her since I was the one that could see her. Kathy suggested that I should ask her first of all, Are you a lost soul? The woman in black stared at me, stern-faced, and then shook her head. I told Kathy the reply was no. Ask if she needs prayers, said Kathy. The reply was the same, another stern shake of the head. I was feeling very uncomfortable and restless. The woman in black was losing her patience with me. Then, out of the blue, Kathy started shouting at her. You're evil! What are you doing here tormenting these people? They never did you any harm. This outburst angered the creature. She lunged at me and banged my head off the wall. All I could see were stars. I couldn't believe her strength. I was just like paper in her hands. Kathy shouted, Go away and leave these people alone. The woman in black ignored her. She closed in on me, gripping my neck to give her a better purchase as she repeatedly banged my head off the wall. Her attack was like a fit. Her grip was so powerful and unexpected that I really thought I was going to die. The only thing that stopped her was Greta. She grabbed me and held herself in front of me so the woman couldn't get at me. The woman drew back, 
her hold on me broken for a moment. Then she turned with a look of sheer rage on her face and stalked out of the living room and I was left almost unconscious. We stayed up for the rest of that night, too frightened to think of sleeping. Thankfully, she didn't return. The next day, John's sister Mary called in and again they filled her in on the story in its entirety and again she listened. When they were finished, she told them that she was taking them to visit Father Paddy O'Donnell, a man who was familiar with these sorts of things. And before they knew it, they were sitting in a waiting room and were greeted by a man who exuded warmth and comfort. He listened to their story. And when they were finished, he said... I find these things very hard to believe, but I can tell by the state you two are in that there is something in that house that is frightening you a lot. Not only did he agree to come to the house, but he performed a blessing on the two of them right then and there. When he arrived at the house, Father O'Donnell moved through from room to room and encouraged John and Greta to move with him. He was calm and self-assured and seemed to know exactly what he was doing. After he had left the house, Greta's nephew Danny and his wife Sandra arrived, keen to keep the family company. During the night, Danny stood up without warning and announced that he was going to take the children to his house to see something. At the time, there was great confusion, but Danny later stated that he could feel the entity coming down the stairs and he knew he needed to get the smaller children out of the house. Again, the following events are told in John's own words. No sooner had Danny left the house than she came in. The black figure came towards me and I started to panic. Sandra shouted, Remember what Father O'Donnell said? She meant that I should ignore it. I tried, but I couldn't tear my eyes from her face. She glared at me with real menace in her gaze. I knew I shouldn't look at her, but it was a fascination that I couldn't break. I wanted to break the lock she had on my eyes, but I couldn't. Sandra shouted again, Don't look at it! Suddenly, a glass on the table flew off and just missed Sandra's head. The woman in black's way of telling Sandra to shut up. Then the woman grabbed me and banged my head off the radiator a few times. Mark ran to my assistance, but he received a punch in the head that sent him flying. Greta and Sandra put their arms around me to keep the woman off. Only then did she turn and walk out of the room. She was away for a few minutes. When she returned, she approached me once again. I jumped and ran for the front door out of pure fright because I knew what she was going to do and when I got to the door, it wouldn't open. It was jammed solid. Sandra came up behind me and she tried her strength against it. It was a horrible feeling for she had us trapped. A simple figure that appeared and disappeared would have been possible to put up with. But this, this was more than just a simple haunting of a house. This was a a powerful entity who resented our presence. After a few seconds, the door opened and the three of us were able to get out into the street where we stood catching our breath for a few minutes. We peered back into the house, but there was no more activity. Luckily, the gathering of sightseers who had been there earlier had drifted away. I said at last, This thing isn't going to keep me out of my own home. I am going back in. 
Every fibre of my being shouted at me to turn and run, but my mind was made up. I was not going to let this thing take over my home. When we went back in, she had gone, but there was a terrible feeling hanging in the room. It was very cold and dark, even though the fire was lit and the lights were on. We knew from this atmosphere that she was still about, and I kept asking myself where. Danny returned at this point and we explained what had happened. He then described the feeling he had experienced just before he had taken the kids out. It was about an hour after that when the woman returned to the living room. I could sense her coming as soon as her feet touched the top of the stairs. Her approach was always accompanied by a cold breeze and my stomach felt as if it was turning inside out from nervousness. She attacked me again, banging me on the head. She always went for me there and it wasn't long before I had a lot of bruising. My neck also took a lot of punishment where she had grabbed me. Even though people got around me to cover and protect me, the only person who could really protect me was Greta. When the woman ever saw Greta put her arms around me or hold me, her look would change to anger, and she would walk off as if in a rage. I believe it was the love that Greta and I shared for each other that kept me from getting seriously hurt. Any time the woman started to approach me, I would call out Greta's name and she would always be there. Even though she was terrified, she would find the strength from somewhere to come to my aid. Danny and Sandra stayed with us until daylight, when we felt brave enough to be on our own again. We had stolen a little sleep here and there, but we were wretched from lack of rest. It's probably fair to say that Irish families are an unusual entity in their own right. And when Greta's family found out what was happening, 14 of them showed up to show the ghost who was boss. In all, there were 21 people in that small council house on that nondescript street. They had been in the house talking and laughing and making jokes when one by one they sensed the cold. John had known it was coming and he knew it was not going to be good. He was beginning to get a sense of the woman in black now and when he could feel her cold before she even entered the room, he knew she was very angry and therefore very powerful. She entered the room seemingly undeterred by the sea of faces and for once, John saw an expression on her face that wasn't anger, it was curiosity and it flickered across her face as she took in all of the people in the room. As she walked past Greta's sister Anne, Anne exclaimed out loud, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, I swear I just felt a woman's skirt brush past me. And then the crucifix that Anne wore on a chain was ripped from her neck. After everything had calmed, the family all decided to turn the TV on to bring a bit of noise and cheer to the house again. John needed to use the bathroom and asked his friend Tony to come with him and his son Mark followed. When he was done in the bathroom, he emerged to find Tony and Mark discussing cold spots that seemed to be moving up and down the landing. John felt uneasy. He could not see her, but he could sense that she was prowling. There was something about this that I didn't like. Then, as I reached the second bedroom, a force grabbed me as if I was a rag doll and flung me over the banister. I landed on the couple of steps, with a jar that hurt my back. For a few seconds I lay stunned, not really knowing what had happened. 
I was roused from my stupor by the approach of a cloud of coldness that came from downstairs. Before I could recover, my legs were pulled up into the air and I was dragged down the stairs so that my head bounced off every step. I could see Big Tony staring at me over the banister, powerless to help me. By the time I reached the bottom of the stairs, there was commotion. They spilled out from the living room, shouting and screaming. All I could see was their feet. I was almost unconscious from the blows to my head. But then I saw something that almost made my heart stop in my chest. In amongst the feet of the visitors, I could see the lower half of the black dress that belonged to the woman as she stood over me. I started to run my eyes up to see what she was about to do, but a sudden forward movement from her galvanised me. I cried out, She's there! She's there! Everyone stood over me, forming a human barricade, and the woman was forced to turn away and go back upstairs. My kids joined in, rushing out in their pyjamas, crying and screaming, adding to the din. Some of Greta's sisters could stand no more. They were taken home in cars and my kids went to stay with them and other relatives. This all happened so quickly that I was still lying on the floor. Before I could get up, there came a series of deafening thuds from up on the landing. It was as if someone was dancing around upstairs. I didn't know whether she was dancing with the light at having got to me or whether she was angry at being driven off again. The noise was terrifying and in amongst all this racket, I could hear her shouting. The words were indistinct with the background babble of frightened relatives, but I was sure she was shouting, get out. John was brought to the living room and stretched out to catch his breath, but she wasn't done with him yet. For the first time, John had this horrifying thought that maybe this woman actually wanted to kill him. She entered the room again and began raining down blows on John. He was even lifted into the air and thrown against the wall by her in full view of the family. But this time he had had enough. In a rage, he jumped to his feet and began swinging for her wildly. She stalked out of the room and up the stairs and he followed, completely blinded by rage and desperation and unsure of what he could even do to her. He dashed after her, grabbing a crucifix, and with the crucifix raised, she simply turned, and John was rocketed back down the stairs, head over heels. And when John looked back, she was standing on the stairs, watching him, with one foot crushing the crucifix. It was decided that Greta needed to go and stay with her sister. John was terrified of exposing her to this thing and putting her through this night after night. Greta was terrified because it seemed that the woman in black would abate her attacks if she stepped in front of John or put her arms around him. It was as though her love for him somehow kept him safe. But she hadn't slept in four days and nor had she eaten in the house. It was too much. So she went and stayed with her sister, who was only a few miles away. People were still gathering outside the house, hundreds of them, trying to catch a glimpse of the ghost of number 91. The presence of Father O'Donnell in the home again only exacerbated the growing crowd, but there was nothing John could do to stop it. That night in the house there were only men, and Father O'Donnell, and the woman never showed. The house seemed oddly peaceful, it would get a bit colder every now and then, 
Lights would flicker on and off and appliances would turn on and off of their own accord. But a wedge was forming between Greta and John. The children were not staying in the house for their own safety. And when John and Greta awoke, they both had sore throats and John was laying across the bedroom floor. Greta was convinced that the woman in black was showing up while they slept and that she had been hurting them while they slept. She had red marks around her neck and she was now frightened to sleep in the bed with John. Visitors continued to come and go and the woman would make herself known again when John was not in the room. He was called to the sitting room by his nephew and when he walked in, everyone in the room was silent and panicked. Greta was terrified and the woman in black was standing over her. The room was ice cold. Two more visitors burst in and one made his way towards Greta, seeing that she was clearly distressed. He walked right through the woman in black, not seeing her, and was frozen on the spot. He would later say, All I know is that I just walked into the room. The first thing I saw was Greta, standing there as if someone had a gun to her head. I just started to walk over to her. As I got close, it was like walking into a fridge. I have never felt anything like it before. It was like there was this cold spot right in the middle of the room. I couldn't move or speak or anything. And the onslaught of violence continued. At one point, she dragged John off the sofa. He was holding on to another visitor who was also subsequently dragged off the sofa. He ran from the house to call the priest and half an hour later, another neighbour that they did not know came to the door to say that the priest wasn't coming. That he was unwell. They invited that neighbour in and again John was attacked. The woman grabbed me by the neck and banged my head off the wall repeatedly. Her grip was so strong and the blows were so violent that my eyes were nearly popping out of my head. My friend Kevin was the first to grab me and then Greta got to me. Kevin and I were flung over the sofa leaving Greta screaming. Greta's two friends ran out of the house in hysterics. While the man who had brought the message was sitting there speechless... He had experienced the cold sensation and witnessed two men being thrown bodily over the sofa. At that moment, the door knocked again and Father O'Donnell walked in. Unquestioning, he stated that he had never received any message and had awoken at 3am with a feeling that Greta and John were in danger and that he needed to get to the house. The woman in black again made herself known and this time John hid behind the priest, sobbing, no longer able to deal with the worry and the fright of the attacks. She moved towards Father O'Donnell, seemingly unfazed by him and his crucifix and his prayers, but stopped suddenly, as if coming up against some sort of resistance, turned angrily and stalked out of the room. Father O'Donnell was clearly shaken and decided that they needed to say a mass in the house right then and there. The mass was said and the feeling in the house lightened, but John and Greta could still sense her presence. She was still there in the shadows. Father O'Donnell returned the next morning to speak to the family and told them, under no uncertain terms, that they needed to leave the house. He had told them previously that they just needed to ignore whatever this thing was that usually worked. But this time he had felt her. He didn't know what she was. 
but he knew that she was coming back and Greta and John knew that she was coming back. And Father O'Donnell believed that staying in the house was putting the entire family at risk. But where would they go? It wasn't as simple as just uprooting and finding a new house at the drop of a hat. And what if Father O'Donnell was wrong? He had suggested leaving the house and that the lack of life in the house would drain the entity of its power. But what if it didn't? And what if it just came with John wherever he went? But in the end, they knew they needed to leave and decided to stay with John's cousin across the road. And during this time, as with the rest of this story, the house was full of visitors, including a man named Mikey Bradley, who had lived a few doors down. And he told them a story that would change the way they thought about the woman in black. Over a year before, one night, he and his wife were preparing for bed, and his wife saw an apparition. As Mikey told his story, John's skin began to prickle. What Mikey described was the woman in black, right down to the last detail. What if it wasn't the house that was haunted? What if it was the land itself? I just love to leave you guys on a cliffhanger because it is a two-parter and I will finish the story next week. But let's do a bit of unpicking into this absolutely bonkers story. So again, thank you to Adam for sending me the book. It is called um, Number 91, A Belfast Haunting. And there's a couple of things I need to make you aware of. So most Irish Catholic houses would have had rosary beads and holy water to hand. So when you're listening to this story and you're thinking, hang on a second, how are these people have holy water to throw over her instantly? Because that happens a few times in the story. Um, and it is, it would have been very common. So my Nana would have had holy water like in every room of the house, literally in every room of the house. Rosary beads, there was crucifixes up all over the walls, like holy pictures up all over the walls. Um, something that I have weirdly adopted in my adult life. I also have pictures of the Virgin Mary all over my house, which I think freaks people out sometimes. But it's it's a very common thing. And it was in, definitely, particularly in the 80s, in an Irish Catholic household to have all of these um, holy items knocking around the house. And a council house is like social housing. I suddenly realised that that's probably a term that people aren't really familiar with if you live outside of the UK and Ireland. The other thing that I need to point out, because it comes up so much in this story, is that it is so common for Irish houses for people to just be calling in all day. So if it seems like they had a lot of visitors, yes, they did. Like they had visitors. I couldn't even be bothered to mention them because there were so many named people that came and went in this house. At one point in the story, there's 21 people in that house, at least. I think there's actually more than 21, but there is... 21 people knocking around the house all waiting for this ghost to show up. And that is constant throughout this story. It seems like people are just knocking on the door at all hours of the day and night. And that's a pretty common thing. I listened to Weekly Creeps breakdown of this story as well. They did a two part. I think it was their episode 38. They did a two part episode on this. And it's well worth going to listen to. So I would highly recommend going to listen to it. And Adam was also talking about how Irish people... (laughs) They, like it's just a very common thing in Irish families to have people coming in and out all the time. So my my own family all live on the same street and 
they are in and out of each other's houses like literally all day every day that's not an exaggeration so that part of the story was really making me laugh because it just seemed like they had constant visitors and also this gossip must have been great so of course you're going to have people coming in and out and apparently they had visitors that were coming in like neighbours coming in being like listen I've brought you some rosary beads I've brought you a holy medal I've brought you pictures of the sacred heart to put up in the house I heard about this person who'll be able to help you so everybody was getting involved in this John also highlighted in the story that the rumour mill was rife with this one. So while a lot of the neighbours were really good, they were calling into them. I mean, there was there was the general nosiness too, where people were like gossiping and wanting to know what was going on. There were also these rumours going around about the family as well. Like people were saying, oh, they've been playing the Ouija board. That's why this has happened to them. People were saying that they had secretly let the IRA use the house for punishment beatings. And other people were saying, you know, John was abusive. John had been beating Greta and this was his sort of almost karmic retribution for that. I mean, you can get why they didn't want anybody to know in the first place, right? So let's get into this this story, bonkers as it is. First question, why did it happen so suddenly? So I know in the beginning he says... All of these weird things have been happening in the house, like lights coming on and off, footsteps at night time, things that could be easily explained away. Like, were those a result of the haunting or was that just hindsight saying, oh, all those weird things happened, so that was probably the haunting as well? Because I don't think the two things are connected, to be really honest. And that could be naive of me. That could be me just being a proper horror movie dad. But I just don't think those two things are connected because she just suddenly appears in their life out of nowhere. And start smacking the shit out of John. Like what's, how did it happen so suddenly? And why was he the only person that was able to see her? And why was all of her violence centred towards him? And I want to be really clear about something. And that is that I direct quoted. Word for word direct quoted. All of the incidents of extreme violence in this haunting. Because I didn't want anyone to think that I'd exaggerated them. Every so often. I get emails from people who are utterly convinced that I make up the stories, that I make up listener stories in particular. I would like to say that I don't. But the violence in this story is so extreme that I really did think if I kind of write this in my own way, in my own words and change it up a bit, people are going to think that I am flat out making this up because it seems so outrageous. And I just want to put it out there that I direct quoted this stuff Apparently he was thrown over a banister. Apparently he was thrown over the sofa. Apparently she was boxing the head off him. Smashed his head against radiators and all. Like, what's going on there? And we have heard stories over the years of poltergeist activity where there was violence involved. Whether it's people getting slapped in the face or people getting strangled. But we've never had, we've never had anything like this. The woman in black coming and like sparring with you in the middle of your sitting room when all your family's sitting around like what's what's that all about and can I just point out as well I, I need to be really clear that all of this all of the, the stuff that I've just spoken about happens in the space of like four days this is not a long protracted period of time this is literally four days it goes from nothing sitting around watching you know videos to He's getting the shit kicked out of him around the house by this ghost. That's that. There's no other. There's no. There's there's no kind of long timeline here, right? It's over the space of four days. And now something really intrigued me about the beginning of this story as well. So John writes in in the story that 
the lack of sleep was really getting to them, which in fairness, it does. And he specifically says, I think it's on day two. It's either day two or day three, but I'm nearly sure it's day two. He specifically references that him and Greta had lost loads of weight from not eating because of the stress they were under. Now, the reason that intrigued me, and I'm putting my cynical hat on here for a second. The reason that intrigued me is that I believe is an exaggeration because regardless of how little you eat in the space of two days, you are not going to lose a significant amount of weight in the way that he is suggesting. And the sentence that he writes says that him and Greta had started to lose a lot of weight because they hadn't eaten in, in since this all began. But this all began two days ago, babe. So that intrigued me because it felt like an exaggeration. And while it seems like such a small, insignificant detail, and I understand that, and I am being very cynical and picky, if you are willing to exaggerate that part of the story to try and portray how serious it was, are there any other bits of the story that you were willing to exaggerate to try and make people believe you? The other thing I will say is that lack of sleep is terrifying. If you have a number of days where you do not sleep, and I'm not talking about, you know, you have you have an interrupted night's sleep or you have a difficult night's sleep or whatever. I'm talking about three, four days with no sleep. That does serious things to your mental health and to your perception of reality. And I am speaking on that one as somebody who suffers from insomnia and has had and has experienced this. Your critical thinking skills, your ability to rationalize things goes out the window. And I'd go so far as to say your grip of reality goes out the window as well. So I think that needs to be held in mind here. And it also needs to be held in mind that there's a bazillion people coming in and out of this house constantly who are probably adding their own theories, ideas, who are adding their own fears, etc. to this story. So there's a, there's so much going on. And my question is also the fact that there were so many witnesses to these events, so many people in the house, like 21 people, 14 people, there's nine people in the house, there's different people coming and going. What do they actually see? So they feel cold, we know that. Anne feels a dress go past her and her chain, her crucifix is pulled off. They witness him flying through the air and they hear the footsteps upstairs dancing around. And they witness John being punched or his head banged against things or John being strangled. But I would love to get all of those witnesses in a room one by one and be like, what did you actually see with your own eyes? And is it important that we differentiate John's experience, which is seeing this woman coming in and out of the living room constantly, attacking, retreating, going back upstairs, and then being violently attacked by her, as opposed to what the witnesses are seeing and hearing, which is John saying she's in the room, John saying she has punched me in the face, she has attacked me, she has done this, that and the other. So there is a stark difference there between the depth of the experience that people are having in this house. And say if we just put all of my cynicism aside, because I do have quite a lot of critical thoughts about this story, and we take this story at face value, the level of violence is unlike anything I've ever heard before. And I don't quite know what to do about it. I don't quite know 
even what to say about it. So if we're taking John's story at face value, there is this entity, this woman in black, who is prowling around his house and who is attacking him violently any chance she gets, seemingly really angry, enjoying attacking him, but not attacking anybody else, interestingly. Um, except one point she punches Mark in the face, as in, although he just says Mark received a punch. He doesn't say that she hit him. She's, he says that in a scuffle between him and the woman in black, Mark received a punch, which is very interesting wording. But we take it all at face value. What is that powerful? We've never had a poltergeist that has been that violent towards a person or that's centred on a person. We've never had a listener story or a famous case or claim that has been centred around an entity like this. Never. So if what John is saying is as he is describing objectively, what is she? Because she ain't no ghost that we've ever dealt with before. I'm saying that like we're, like we're, like we collectively, me and you, the listener, like we're Ghostbusters. It sounds more like something way more powerful than that. Something ancient, like something to do with the land, some sort of, some sort of like old, old entity. And then you have the bombshell of Mikey's story at the end where he's like, yeah, I used to live down the road and, uh, my wife saw this woman one night and then he goes on to describe the woman and it's the same woman. So is she haunting the land? Is she some sort of ancient, spiritual, ancient entity? Something that you'd read about in folklore? Like it's giving me Hayal Fanag vibes where it's like, oh, actually, what you're dealing with doesn't care about religion. It doesn't care about Christianity. It's something other than all of that. Because whatever this entity is, she rips the cross off Anne's throat she doesn't stop advancing on the priest. He's like praying at her. He whips out his crucifix. Not a euphemism. All that jam. She doesn't stop taking steps forward. She stands on the crucifix on the stairs. Yes, she gets holy water poured on her, but she's sort of like, that's annoying. Rather than it being like, you know, she doesn't burst into a hissing mess. So is she something that does not fall within the realms of being remotely bothered or concerned by ideas around Christianity? Is she is she something ancient? It is interesting also that he mentions sort of as a throwaway comment at the beginning of this story that nothing really untoward happened in the house except for footsteps, things turning on and off until the birth of their daughter And when they brought their daughter home, things started happening. And we've had that before with the story of the reawakening where the family bring the little girl home and they think that the little girl being in the house awakened something in the house. So is it possible that it's to do with the little girl? And my final question for you that I'm going to leave you pondering is, um, who was the neighbour? Who was the neighbour that came knocking at the door in the middle of the night and was like, oh, by the way, I have a message for you from the priest. Uh, He's not coming because he's really unwell. Another thing to explain about this is that a lot of families in the 80s in Ireland, they wouldn't have had phones. There might have been one or two families on a street that might have had a phone and people would use their phones. So they knock on the door and be like, "Um, do you mind if I use the phone? I need to ring whoever. But most of the time, that's how messages were sent. You'd go to a neighbour's house who did have a phone. You'd use their phone and be like, if anybody rings back, please take the message from me and deliver it to me. That was the way things worked. So presumably, somebody ran out of the house, ran to wherever there was a phone, whether it was a pay phone, whatever it was, and rang for the priest, right? 
Then this random neighbor comes and says, I've just heard from the priest or I've just gotten this message that the priest isn't coming. He's unwell. But then the priest comes knocking on the door and is like, yes, yeah, sorry, I woke up at 3 a.m. thinking that you guys needed me, that there was something wrong. And he's like, I never got any message. So like, who's this neighbour? Why is he bringing bullshit messages to the house? Oh, there's so much going on in this story. And uh, part two will be next week. And just to let you know, I actually myself have not read part two yet. I am really excited to read part two because I have all of these thoughts and questions. And I'm like, I need to find out who the neighbour is. I need to find out why John is the only person that can see this. I need to find out if it's like an ancient entity or if it's some sort of ghost that has like superpowers. And there's also something about this story that just doesn't sit right with me on a human level. And I need to figure out why I feel that way about it. Let me know your thoughts. I'm dying to know what you think of this story. It's a pretty crazy one. And thank you again to Adam from Weekly Creep for sending me the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have got a ghost story that you want to send in to me, you can send it to Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Rory and Kid here from the award winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week, we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot, or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it. You're going to scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.